Welcome to Transformative Talk, Critical Conversations for Teachers. I'm Dr. Zid Haddad, a professor of instruction within the Department of Interdisciplinary Learning and Teaching at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I teach undergraduate and graduate courses in curriculum and instruction. In short, I teach teachers how to teach and save lives through the use of critical multicultural education as an approach to teaching and learning. Our podcast is produced by a different group of graduate students each week, giving them an opportunity to talk about what they're reading in my class, what they experience in the field, and how that impacts their own lives and understandings. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast from wherever you're listening. Also, you can ask us questions and engage with us further using the Anchor.fm website or the Anchor.fm app on your phone. You can submit questions and you can also send us voice messages. And remember, please share our podcast on all your socials so that we can build our audience. Thanks for listening, and here's today's episode. Um, uh, if you want to say, um, I don't know, just the whole kind of like, you know, welcome back. Um, All right, guys. Well, welcome back to this week's uh, transformative talk. I'm Amanda. We have, I'm here with Nora and Samantha as our hosts for this week. Um, so we just kind of, dove right into Bordeaux's reading. Um, now we're going to come back and kind of critique a little bit of of um, the reading, but also what do you guys think about how Bordeaux's ideas also intertwined with funds of knowledge? So I, I think it's important to note that funds of knowledge is really building upon where Bordeaux left off. Um, because his whole idea, the, what I kind of took away from Bordeaux was this is sort of what it looks like now. Like I, I kind of liked thinking of Bordeaux as this is the lay of the land and what we have now. And I like that funds of knowledge says that may be the case, but I'm going to take it a step further and I'm actually going to prove you're wrong. Students aren't coming with deficits. They aren't coming behind. They're bringing in a different set of skills, a different set, set, um, set of, of ideologies and life experiences and backgrounds that may not seem as though they are conforming with the institutionalizing of knowledge, but they're a, a completely different set of skills that are just as valuable. Right. And along those lines, I thought that when we think about funds of knowledge and you know, funds of knowledge specifically referring to historically accumulated and culturally developed bodies of knowledge and skills essential for household or individual functioning and well-being. So we think about it in those actual terms, just like what you were said, I think we're saying, I think funds of knowledge is the complementary to the side of cultural capital. It's an acknowledgement of what our students bring or what students bring with them. And also there was a great sort of aside in there and I don't, that it makes our students more dimensional. And so I feel like funds of knowledge is what makes our students from 2D to 3D. It's what sort of flushes them out as, you know, this sort of fullness and roundness of, you know, not just character and skill and knowledge, but all of these ways in which, you know, they're bringing, you know, their own knowledge and value but also as an educator, it helps you sort of flush them out dimensionally. I thought that was a really great way of thinking about that idea. And it complements Bordeaux and goes further. Absolutely. Well, and, and I've always hated the analogy of a student is a blank slate that you're going to mm -hmm. fill with knowledge. I, I've always hated <laughs> exactly. that. Analogy. Yeah, right and, there with and you. So 
I, I like this idea that funds of knowledge is saying they're not coming to you with a blank slate. They're coming to you with a filled slate with dozens of filled slates. And it's up to you to really see what it is that makes that student that student and yeah. how you can teach that student. Because what you can add. And what you can exactly and 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 not not say, you know, and it's it's very decentering, I think. Like it's it's a very decentering phenomena when a teacher no longer is the holder of all knowledge. And it it brings it back to it's a conversation and a relationship between teacher and student, and it's a sharing of knowledge. Right. And it, it, it's acknowledging and respecting your students as individuals. And as somebody who teaches high school, you really need to be able to do that. Um, yes, you are sort of, you know, um, wrangling your classroom. Um, but in a sense, you already need to be at the place when I feel like there's a lot of agency that students bring with them. And you have to acknowledge that and respect them as individuals. And I feel like if you are aware of concepts like this, and if you are actively trying to apply them to your students, to your classroom, like it just, you're gonna be so much more successful and less stressed out in general, I feel. But also it's gonna make for such a better classroom environment because your students will feel heard and respected. And you're acknowledging the things that they can contribute um, as an art teacher again. This is so fundamental. And they come to you with all kinds of knowledge that they can apply and share. And I cannot tell you how they light up when they are sharing their own knowledge. In oh, a process. absolutely. Yeah, you know? absolutely. You acknowledge their, like, um, not, you acknowledge their knowledge and their proficiency and what they can bring. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. And other students acknowledge that thing that so-and-so is good at. Oh, they so-and-so showed us how to, you know, and, then and that's huge. like they're valued by you and they actually matter. Mm -hmm. And who, and so a, a question that I had definitely had was while reading through was like, who, you know, who decides my social standing, who gets to decide this economic and cultural capital that I have, you know, is this subjective? And so I thought that, like you had said, Samantha, that moles, um, that funds of knowledge really does show you that it is subjective because when you get into the different cases within Moles reading, I know Nora, we had talked about Carlos and his funds of knowledge. That's, that was subjective because if, you know, depending on who you ask, one person might think, well, yeah, this kid has a lot to offer. Right. And so maybe somebody else would be more critical of his, of his, of his different economic and social capital. So that was another point that I think was um, interesting as well. Well, I think using that exact um, example, that little boy is enterprising and he's innovative and he's creative and he clearly sees the world um, in terms that he's learned from his family from, you know, uh, we got a little bit of a background with Carlos's family in Mexico. There were several business owners and, and you know, they had uh, ties to agriculture and small stores. And so he clearly has a model for this, for this kind of knowledge, and he's applying it in his own, you know, candy kind of way. Uh, and so I think there's all kinds of ways in which you can acknowledge that. And I loved what they did with their example in their classroom. But that is a way in which think about the kind of knowledge that that young man has already. And I really, really hope that he is able or is, is, was in classrooms where they are acknowledging that kind of knowledge, because imagine what that kid can contribute to a classroom. 
And I think that's so important to, to think of, imagine what that kid can contribute to a classroom because, and I'm sure you all would agree with me and I'm sure every other teacher um, hopefully would agree with me. You know, it always blows me away some of the questions that kids come up with in class. Like I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, presenting a lecture or something and a kid will ask me a class or a question that just, it takes the class on a totally different path than I was intending, but it's an amazing path. And it's one that ignites interest for that student, which then spills over to other students. And did we end exactly where I wanted us to? No, but did we end somewhere better because of a student who had a completely different life experience, a completely different, I mean, something I hadn't even thought about they're bringing into class and it yeah. created this amazing conversation where they learned way more than anything I would have ever said before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's things like that that make you think of, so you know, critically, a lot of us um, in graduate programs have had to think of our positionality, right? Our students have positionality. Our students have funds of knowledge, working things that they are bringing. And you know, I think one of the most powerful things teachers can do is to acknowledge that. Uh, and you know, give them a little space to contribute those things into your classroom because so often they can bring things up in their own terms that their peers can relate to in a way that educators can't. And are you covering? Are you covering everything you want to cover? Maybe not, but are you hitting all the like you know top things that you need to get done? Yeah, and in their own sort of you know perceptive way. So yeah, I think that is you know fantastic. I think too, I think one of the biggest questions I had, so Mole obviously works, um, there There was sort of two, two players in this. There was the researchers and then the teachers and they were working in tandem and interviewing parents and going into homes. And let's, let's be honest, as educators, we can't do this every year. We can't go and interview parents. So I think what I, what was most, I, I guess, resonating with me while I was reading this, um, I, I was looking at a picture of an iceberg and it was showing, you know, the tip of the iceberg, there's only a little that's visible. And that's sort of what we see when a student walks in. Those are like, you know, benchmark scores from the past, um, grades from the past, um, just different things that we can just see on a cursory glance. And then it showed the iceberg underwater. And those are all of those things that you could get if you did interview families the way that they did in this research. Mm-hmm. So my big question is, so how can we get teachers to get into these funds of knowledge and learn their students' funds of knowledge if they're bound in a way that they can't go to you know, parents and they can't go to homes and, and do this type of research. I think I have that same question. I was wondering, even with administration, is there gonna is there gonna be, you know, limits? Are a certain administration, depending on who you have is gonna be you know, pushing this for you to be able to do, or are they going to kind of restrict you and say, oh, you know, um, is this a little too intrusive? What are these limitations? Because each in adding on to that, each family is going to have different boundaries regarding this. Even mm-hmm. thinking back on my own students, I have parents who I know would welcome me right on in and I could sit there for hours and they would be very open. And then I have other parents who, you know, they're not gonna feel comfortable with that notion. So where do we as educators get to engage in that with our families? It is, there is a boundary there that we kind of have to find. Very much so. Um, part of that is just getting to know your students. And I, I understand that 
I am very, very lucky in that respect. Um, I don't have desks in my room. I have tables. Um, my classroom is a very sort of, you know, I set it up intentionally as a space where they are comfortable, where they, there is sort of like a chatter. Um, I don't encourage them to be loud, you know, inside voices, but there's always sort of discussions going on. They share a lot with each other. Um, and with me, because as you are the process, we are about process and making. And so it's comfortable to sort of relate to one another. So I get a lot from them. Um, but my school has a policy where we have to contact parents. Mm -hmm. And so I have to call every single parent every, every six weeks. And I do it. Um, I'm required to. Um, I, you know, I'm at the point where I've been there so long that, you know, I've had brothers and sisters and cousins. And so they're like, oh yeah, Miss Rodriguez calls people. And so it's one of those things that I relate to parents. The parents know me. Um, they're good phone calls always in the beginning. And then we, you know, they change. Um, but they, you know, that can those two factors have led me to have a lot of success in a community that is a small town that I am not from, that I, well, I do have some relatives that live there, but, you know, into which I, you know, now know families and, you know, I still have parents calling me about scholarship things and so-and-so is in school now. And so we still, you know, I'm able to build those relationships. And so have I done in parent interviews like this? No, but there are ways in which you can relate to um, students and families and like them. And I, this was one of the things that I pulled out. Um, I have found that in the community that I work, there's a great respect for educators and parents are willing to, you know, speak to teachers um, without reservation for the most part. So it's, it's been a good experience in that way. So, you know, outside of a research situation like that, there are ways, even if you're not from that community, um, to try to make an attempt, but I'm also willing to talk to parents in my broken Spanish because um, there's a chance I'm calling families who, you know, that's not their first language, but I try. So it takes a lot of work. I think too, what, what I sort of brought up in class during our class discussion. Um, so at the start of the year at my school, um, we always have an open house and I, um, I was very lucky. I worked in a great magnet program after my first year teaching, working inner city. And I did pick up some things and learn. And I, I have been on the tail end of parent conversations where they do not want me to call home and they do not want to take the call or deal with it. Um, so what I decided to do at my second job was I made a point at the beginning of the year before there was ever any issue, I called every parent on my list. Yeah. And it, it took me two weeks to get through the entire list and it's time consuming, but I tried to establish a relationship with that parent very early on that was positive. Yeah. And so I made it a goal from that point on that if I ever had a student that I had to make sort of a negative phone call or just say, you know, hey, little Johnny's not turning in X, Y, and Z. After that, I think for my own mental health, I would call two other parents and just tell them how great their student was doing. And I'd keep a little log and I'd say, you know, Sally's doing great. She's got an A. She asked a really great question in class today. And yeah, I mean, like you said, I have parents now that I'm not even teaching at the moment and they'll come back and ask me for scholarship recommendations for their student. And so yeah. I think your point is completely correct is that you have to find ways to build relationships in whatever capacity you can do it, whether it's 
trying to, you know, have a phone call or, you know, sending home letters to families. I know in elementary school, they do a lot of like class newsletters. That's awesome. I know it always makes me jealous. I'm like, I can't do that with 150 to 200 kids. It's just a little too much. <laughs> My goal is eventually to have a website where they can like see artwork and stuff. Um, I just, every year there's so much to do. I'm like, you know, that's in the back of my mind, but I would love to do like a touch point, something like that, like a newsletter where they can have an ongoing, I know some teachers are able to do that, but I'm like, oh, the time. <laughs> well, I know this was something that was um, a huge discussion in our class this past week. Um, and so we did have classmates who were, um, not, I don't want to say the word divided, but we have different experiences in regards to teacher communication and, you know, Oh, the phone call conversation. Yes. And parents might, or some, yeah, some parents might find um, a lot of phone calls or even home visits to be intrusive based on their own personal experience with Mm -hmm. school um, and what they've endured. And so, you know, this brings us back to what we're discussing right now in terms of how can we navigate that as educators how and like you said Nora just really getting to know our kids and their parents because you will you know socially you will be able to tell which parents might be a little bit more closed off and so those might be the parents that we as teachers have to nudge a little more in a in a, in a more positive way giving a lot more positive feedback and not necessarily calling them every day oh your child did great today <laughs> you know I okay. think a lot of parents don't they their time is valuable and I think when and I know we had a classmate who was expressing that, you know, I, they want the teacher to be genuine. They want to know that when that teacher is making that phone call and making that communication, that it's coming from a place of actually caring about the child and a genuine yeah. heartfelt place versus, um, oh, well, I just need to check this off my list because my administration wants me to make a phone call this, mm-hmm. you know, nine weeks. So that is something that I know we as teachers have to be more mindful of too, if we want to um, engage in that funds of knowledge with our students and their, their communities too. I think too, it's very important to, to recognize that you also set the tone as the teacher. Um, in, in talking, um, like you brought up Amanda, people do have childhood traumas involved with school. Um, that is a very real, yeah, somebody brought that up in class and I was like, you know, and it, and it's so valid. And I think Mm -hmm. as educators, we know why we're in the classroom, but I think we have to acknowledge that there are teachers maybe out there or in the past that should not have been in a classroom in the tone that they set. So I think it's important that if we can set a different tone and we can change the narrative for that parent and show that, like you said, genuine, that we genuinely care, we genuinely want to see their students succeed. um, I think that will open that doorway for that relationship because it's not about just making a relationship with the student. It's about making that relationship with the parents, with the community, with the administration, and everyone kind of has to be on the same team as it were. Well, and like you said about setting the tone, it's important that, you know, I'm making good calls and always good calls in the beginning, right? As you're getting to know them. Um, And then sometimes there's a little bit of criticism put in there um, or things they can do better, but also there's concern like so-and-so hasn't turned things in 
this is not like her or him, you know, is something going on? How are they doing? You know, so-and-so, you know, raised their voice or yelled at somebody, you know, they, they seem kind of down. And so the tone with which you are speaking to parents, the tone with which you leave a message or, you know, Hey, this is just, you know, to let you know, so-and-so is doing great. Don't need to call me back. Hope you have a great day. You know, it, it really is about sort of, you know, how you are handling this, how you are approaching this and, you know, obviously, or at least hoping that you come across as genuine because you do care about your students. You see them every day for hours a week, right? Um, but also, I think it had never occurred to me, I guess, just because of the school that I'm at and schools I've been to personally, that there are parents who would have their own traumas or who would only be contacted in the most dire of circumstances or you know, only be contacted or constantly be contacted because there's you know, not positive things happening. And so I can't imagine, and, and, and I think we saw a little bit of that frustration in class, what a parent would feel like if it felt like they were constantly being maybe, you know, harangued or bothered only in negative ways. Absolutely. And we have to note that, you know, education, I think has come a, come a long way in that sense. I know just when I was in school, um, you know, I'm not that old, but even when I was in elementary school, the narrative has come, has changed. Um, teachers do more nowadays to give that positive feedback and to build those relationships than even when I was in school. So um, I think the most important takeaway from this week is, is clearly between these two readings, we can see education is growing and, and the research is improving and we're taking steps forward, but I think it's important to note that the work isn't done. And I think as educators, we all need to continuously strive to become more efficient educators for our students and to create environments in which they feel welcome and they feel valued. Right. And that they feel like they're loved and that they're cared for and they're safe too. So great points. I don't know if anybody else has any final questions or maybe some suggestions to our classmates on how they can learn more about this topic or engage in more resources with this topic. Um, I did want to bring up the facilitations really quickly. Oh. Um, we didn't get a lot of response early on, but yes. the responses that we did get, um, I really enjoyed reading through some of those. Um, um, and I wanted to ask you guys, did you enjoy the process of putting those together? I think it helps understand what we were reading. Um, the process of putting those together allows, at least for, for my opinion, it, I was able to kind of not only create the process of making them, but process the readings, you know, and being able to bounce ideas off of you guys and understand things in a more deeper um, way where I can actually take something away from it. So yes, it was beneficial. Um, I found myself flexing my little lesson plan muscle. Like I was, I, I read the readings and then I reread them as in how do, how would I teach this? You know what I mean? And so I thought it was really funny that like we were sort of putting these together as different ways to reinforce knowledge or as kind of like small lessons uh, for our peers. Absolutely. Well, I think that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you discovered our show. Or if you have questions, feel free um, to contact us. That's all for now, but I'll see you in the next episode of the Transformative Talk. Bye. Bye. Bye.